Welcome to Slasher Horror. I'm your host, Leroy Cross James, and today we're going to be talking about a slasher monster movie from the 1980s, my favourite period for horror. To help me with today's topic, I've brought in a special guest who I'm extremely excited to talk to about this film. He is the author of My Zombie Sweetheart, The October Society, and Virgin Night. It's Christopher Robertson. How are you, Kit? I'm, I'm good, Leroy. Cheers for having me. No problem at all. It's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I think the best thing to start with is, of course, I mean, this is a horror podcast. Uh, we both clearly love horror. So I, I'm i interested to know, what what's your history of horror? How did you get into it? Was it from an early age? Oh, I was way too young. First horror movie I remember seeing, and this might be contentious because not everyone considers it a horror movie, but I crept down the stairs and my parents were watching Predator on TV. Mm-hmm. And like, I hid like behind the couch and watched it, and no clue what was going on. And I wanted to see because it it's Arnie. I love Arnold Schwarzenegger, but it was not not watching it. And um, but I did get caught, and my mum chose to turn it into the one of the most traumatic uh, parental moments that I can think of, where she told me the predator's heat vision was actually seeing how violent and misbehaving people were. And led me to believe that there could be a predator just clinging to a tree anywhere in the park or whatever, watching to make sure I was behaving. I love that. <laughs> I might have to use that if I ever have children. They're watching um, you and they're recording you and they know what you're doing and they'll pull your spine out if you don't behave. I love it. So, like, um, I'm assuming, like, like, like myself, I'm assuming as well that you spent a lot of time in the video store growing up, so you got to see all the amazing box art and everything like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's mainly where my inspiration, like, my love for horror comes from. My um, my dad used to run a VHS van, uh, like, used to sell VHS from the back of the lorry, which sounds really dodge, but so yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I know it does, yeah. Um, but we used to have VHS tapes all around the house. And so, like, we just had, like, literally every genre you could, you could think of. And my, my siblings used to babysit me a lot. So, go figure. They they always put on horror. And I was, like, four. And I think my first film was Nightmare on Elm Street. I can't remember. But, yeah, that's that's kind of how I got into to horror, roughly. But, yeah, I'm very much nostalgic about, like, video shops from back in the day as well. <laughs> Well, that's kind of how I came to the Funhouse. It's been one of my favourites. Well, it's, I don't know how true this story is. I mean, that's what makes this stuff, the VHS there, are really good because it was word of mouth and mouth and rumour mm. and gossip. But one day, I think it's probably about 10 or 12 or something in that region, my uncle just shows up with my aunt at my, my house. And he just hands me this big black bin bag. 
Mm. He tells me that it was these were tapes that were his friends who owned a video rental shop that got shut down during the video nasty scare, mm. and he was told to destroy them. And he's like, "I'm not destroying them." He's like, so he just he shoved them all away, forgot about them. He passed on, and when my uncle's clearing out, he went, "Oh, eh, he likes all that stuff. I'll just give it to them." And we're talking like Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, which was my first Friday the Thirteenth movie. The um, Fun House was then like the right like one i remember the most from it because it had that really cool cover with the jack-in-the-box thing and mm. i think i watched that one like a hundred times as a kid i always think it was the set and everything but there was so much in there i mean look at you with that absolutely it's a funny one with with the fun house actually i mean it was it was seized as a video nasty but in fact it was actually the wrong film that they they seized it was a 70s film that it, it was meant to be um, that they were trying to seize, but the Fun House, um, because it had the same title, that's why it originally got seized during the video nasties, apparently. Yeah, well, like so many of the video nasties, though, didn't, there was no reason to seize them. There was nothing in them that was. Mm. So there's a great documentary about it, and you've got like one of the police officers, like who was in, or like higher ups in the cops who was in charge at the time, and he's talking about how he saw these films and he was convinced he was seeing people being killed for real. You look at those films and you're like, really? That does not look like blood. That's part of the fun. That's clearly yeah, rubber. Of course. Yeah, it is part of the fun. I mean, obviously as well with, with horror, that, that clearly transitioned into um, something that you, you clearly love doing, which is which is writing. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your inspirations for, for the books that you've written? Oh, any horror, I guess any horror right around my age, it was Goosebumps was your first fix. Mm. But... I remember I tried to read Pet Cemetery because I had this amazing cover and it was sitting on my mum's shelf and like and she caught me with it and instead of like trying to dissuade me from going down that route or anything, she just went out and bought me a ton of Goosebumps books that I could read. Mm. But I don't know. I was a quite a strange child. I wasn't very variable for like a long time, but I could read like way above my grade, like before I was even in school. So I think I read every Goosebumps book that was available within like two or three months or something and moved on to point horror before mm. I was like in primary six, seven, or so it's like 10. And then I was just ready to move on. Right. Mm. about 10s when the horror obsession really started predator and those books. And I was like trying to read things like Dracula when I was in first year of high school. I even my English teacher famously to like just took it off me and told me not to read that trash. It's like, wow, really? That's Dracula. Like, that's <laughs> a weird yeah, it's like, yeah, of course. Like, yeah, I, I'm still, God, that surprises me. <laughs> this was like, this was pre-Lord of the Rings movies as well. So, so even reading like The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings in school, you were seen as, oh, you're just reading crap. God, that's so weird. I mean, how old I, am. I, I suppose there is like, I, I mean, there is that snobbery towards the genre still, even though, you know, we've we've moved past that. And obviously it's it's been uh, re-evaluated and re criticized for 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 criticism etc um but yeah there is still that snobbery with with the genre which is a shame but yeah i definitely experienced that growing up as well with um with horror like it was just it was still quite taboo whether it was literature or whether it was film but yeah no it's i'm quite surprised with dracula though like you said literary classic yeah i think just because it was gothic and it was horror altogether I remember like my first um, major girlfriend, like when she came over and we went put Donnie Darko and she thought that was a horror movie. She's like, don't you think watching all these films will turn you into a serial killer? We were together for a long time after that, but I probably could have ruined it by the time I slowly shut the door and went, that's the plan. 
yeah, that would have been that would have been a good comeback, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, something with with your with your books, something that and I, I've told you this, and uh, you know, I'm not I'm not going to try and make you cringe with with compliments, but you have such a such a unique writing style, and the way that I I can describe it um, is that your books feel like a cinematic experience it feels not just like reading um a horror a horror novel it feels like you are experiencing a horror film and i'm just interested to know like how how did you come about writing in that that type of style because uh, i'm a field screenwriter right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i know that was a long time when I, I always wanted to write horror stories, and I always wanted to write horror. I tried for like when I was younger, writing in the sort of literary style, mm. and I couldn't do it. I got bored. I got I lost my train of thought very quickly, and I just felt the stories weren't flowing. And then I thought, well, maybe this isn't this isn't for me. And I remember like guidance counselor in high school, college, or spoke me into, why don't you we'll go into like filmmaking and things like that? Seems like it'd be more your style. So I did, I did an um, undergraduate degree in filmmaking and I specialized in screenwriting. So I had this in my head, I was, was going to write movies, I was going to write scripts. And I did write a few, like My Zombie Sweetheart started off as a script. Um, I think the second one I wrote. But the logistics of getting like movies made and things like that, like I made one short film ages and ages and ages ago and it's just, there's so much money, there's so many moving parts, so many people. And I just feel like I can't do the things I want to do. So I said, I'm going to go back to writing books and try and write books. But I'm going to... Mm-hmm just stumbled into the I took my zombie sweetheart and I'll just turn I'll take this I'll adapt it into a novel and as I was writing it and I was trying to sort of change it into like this sort of usual way that books are written I didn't like it and I felt it's losing its edge it's losing its fun and its zip so I went and you know what I'm just going to take out as much of the cinematic terms as possible and just expand on it and do it from there and then from that on then on everything that's been written has been written in, with the intent of being a book it's not started off as a script but i yeah. just let myself separate the idea that no this wants to be a movie but it's going to exist in book form i mean you do that's what I've, I've said this to people who who have recommended um virgin night to specifically i've said you just you do it in this this unique way where like as a creative writing student, it, it's a, it's the the type of style I'm told not to write that way, and it's one of those where it's like it shouldn't work, but it does, and I mean that with the greatest of respect. It really does because of the way that you, um, the way that you you write it. It just it just feels so organic, and I mean, um, obviously, Virgin Night. I I recently read that, and that was honestly one of the best books i have ever written i have ever written i have ever read <laughs> um just i it just it was a, a different reading experience for me and you know it was something that i that was so fresh to me the way that it was written and i, I just yeah I, I i can't i can't compliment you enough on that book i think it was a fantastic uh, book that clearly had many infl- influences from cinematic horror but the way that you transitioned them and made it your like your own story and it was you know it, the 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 law behind it everything like that it was a fantastic book i think i've always been drawn to writers who don't write who write in ways that they're not supposed to mm. so like chuck palniuk is one of one of my favorite writers for a long time and 
he wrote like books like Pygmy, which were written. There's that that's quite a difficult book to read because of the perspective of the character is like this Pygmy spy from like doesn't understand English well and doesn't understand our society, but they're like secretly they're disguised as a child, but they're actually an adult and are secretly spying, taking notes on American society. It's very satirical. It's very difficult to read, um, but it's very enjoyable. And I think like the big thing for me that told me, well, there's maybe a space for the kind of thing I want to do is when I saw one of Carlton Mellick's books for the first time. Mm. If, do you know Carlton Mellick? Like, I've, he- I've heard of I've heard his name, yeah. King, so the particular book um, was The Baby Jesus Butt Plug. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was just sitting on a shelf in Watson's one day, and I went, well, if that exists, so can I. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a great title. Um, so I think that's something to aspire to, absolutely. Yeah, so I've read quite a few of his. Um, he doesn't do the cinematic stuff I do, but he does write in the sort of present tense now and then. And mm. I, I, know, I know my style and the way I do it is not conventional and it's going to be divisive and people aren't going to they're going to dislike it more than they like it but I can't really do it any other way so I guess that's just me I mean f- from from a personal fan of uh, of it I honestly think that yeah it's not conventional but you you know it, it works and you do it so well so um, you know fuck the people who don't like it basically <laughs> oh you can see that I can and you just... <laughs> yeah, that's true. I can say it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I get, um, I get it. I get why people would like. I get why people would prefer something. I guess I said this before in a conversation with a, a good friend of mine, uh, Jamie Stewart, who's mm. another indie horror author. And to be honest, I probably wouldn't be half as far along with writing stuff as I wasn't if it wasn't for Jamie, like uplifting me. But about two years ago now, he gave me a shot, put me in, in an anthology he was editing, and it just gave me the boost to keep going and, and write more and more things. And I've said to him before, I don't really view myself as a writer because I'm not, I don't know, I'm not obsessed with the craft of writing or perfecting the writing. I just want to tell a story. And that's a good, that's, that's a good end game to have, I think, as a writer. I mean, um, and it's always good as well, especially um, in the indie horror community when you do have people who, who lift you up, especially when you try something that is not non-conventional or, you know, experimental. Yeah, I big big thank you to Jamie for that because that there's a, there's a handful of people like yourself included who have kept me going through all this. <laughs> I, I I try, I try my best. I try and be enthusiastic. Uh, obviously, yeah, I want to lift up any any writer um, who who's tr- you know trying to uh, make a name for themselves or get get their work out there, and you know, especially if it is different. Of course, I'm all for I'm all for that. And I believe that you have a new book coming out, don't you? I do, yes. <laughs> yes, yes. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the Cotton Candy Massacre? Yeah, so the Cotton Candy Massacre started off as a joke. Um, about, about October last year, I made uh, friends with someone who's become very like important to like my process, and she's part of Beta Reads Everything, and... She firmly enjoyed Zombie Sweetheart and October Society, and I sort of joked that because she's so afraid of clowns, I'm just going to write a clown book for her. And if she, I think she made a comment like she'd read anything I wrote, and I went, "Well, what if I write about crazy killer clowns?" And she went, "Um, I'd be scarred for life, and I'd read it through like 
closed eyes, but I'd still read it. Went, Fine, I'm going to write that for you. <laughs> and it started as a joke. I wrote the first chapter as like a just being silly and sent it to her. And then I was, it just snowballed from there. I started sending more and more chapters and the entirety of the first draft flew out in about a month and a half. It was the f- first book I've written where I didn't really even do the bare minimum of planning for the characters. Mm. I was just like, all right, there's these characters. They're going to end up at this carnival. Things are going to go to shit. So who are they? Mm. And obviously you've not read this one yet, but so you can't really see if it works or not. But... Um, <laughs> From the people that have read it, this definitely said it's the most chaotic, exhausting, and um, brutal one book I've written yet. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm super excited to read it. Um, obviously, it's on my uh, my TBR um, list at the moment. Uh, but yeah, um, and when when does the Cotton Candy Massacre come out? That's July first, but. I will also be releasing a little short story prequel in about a week or so. Um, so that's just a little 5,000 word short story. It takes place about 10 years before the main story begins. And it's just a little bit of backstory on one of the Cotton Candy Massacre's evil clowns, Bonko. And um, what's that one called? It is called, I've got it here. I've got a little, I made a little chat book for it. It is Goons oh, and that- it's tiny. Oh, that looks so cool. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you give can you give us a little tease of what's 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 next for Christopher Robertson? Well, the next thing that's definitely coming out is I've completed the second draft of my second October Society book. Mm-hmm. So that will be planned for October first. I've not done a proper announcement of the date yet, but it's I wanted to be on the anniversary of the season, the first season. So that's continuing the story of the same kids from the first season, but with six new or or maybe more um, short stories, more like novelettes at this point, because I couldn't contain myself with how long they were getting. So like the average word count of, a, of the individual stories in October Society season one was about 6,000 words. There's a couple in season two that reached 10,000 words because the stories are just getting more, kind of, kind of felt bigger. But um, I'm just going with they got a bigger budget for season two. <laughs> I love that logic. Um, so, obviously, today we're going to be kind of leading in with the Cotton Candy Massacre because this is uh, this is the film we're going to be talking about set in the carnival. So, uh, what better person to talk about this film with? Um, so, we're going to be talking about the Fun House. So, the plot of the Fun House is it tells the story of a young girl called Amy who sneaks off to the carnival with her boyfriend Buzz, who is definitely in high school, guys. And her two friends, Liz and her boyfriend, Richie, against her parents' wishes, of course. This is because the traveling carnival is linked with the murder of two girls in another county. And Richie comes up with the idea of spending the night at the carnival, hiding in a ride called the Fun House. However, it is here that the gang witness a murder and are pursued by a killer within the Fun House. Do you remember? I mean, I know obviously you've you've talked before about um, receiving the the big bag of VHSs from uh, your uncle. Yeah, was that the first time that you watched the Fun House, or did you watch it later on down the line? I, I probably watched it very soon after getting that because that I, that I have all the tapes in the box. I remember that one leaped out the most to me. 
yeah, I mean that that like you said, that VHS box art with the, the jack in the box, it gives nothing away. I if I was to if I was to go into that film, I would think it was about a killer clown. Or, you know, yeah, something along those lines. And it, it kind of it, it kind of strays away from those expectations with that that box art. And I actually it's a weird one for me. I remember I had the VHS, but I got it later on. And even when I was a teen, I still... You remember those TVs that had, like, the VHS built into them? Um, I still had that in my room. And I was dating this guy, and his family were horror-obsessed. Like, they, like, like, like us growing up, they had loads of VHSs. And um, I lent it off him. And I remember that was the first time that I watched it. So it was pretty cool that the first time I watched it, even though it you know, gone past the VHS era was I watched it on VHS and it was a great experience to watch it like that. Um, I mean, it, like I say, it, it, with the with the VHS box art, the UK one specifically, it gives nothing away. And it, it, depend on the, it depends on the original sheets that, um, the one sheets that came out like in the 80s, but some, some of the US ones, I think they kind of alluded to what is in store for this film. There is one cover art that has like sort of Gunther's drooling sneer. That's yeah. more accurate to what's in the film, whereas the there is no Jack in the Box killer no. like that in all this. But that's the that was the beauty of the video nasty area and the VHS era was you didn't have the internet, you didn't really have magazines, you didn't really have anything that was really talking about this stuff. Mm. So they had to just the only thing they could sell themselves on was cover art. So it led to some them just constantly trying to up top top each other or like there's cover art on these movies now when they sell them and like HMV they've got to put stickers over the nudity yeah because they just they kept like up in the ante and going more and more extreme yeah especially a lot with, uh, with a lot of giallo like a lot of the shameless um covers because they use the original cover art but yeah like I noticed that in the um HMV they'll put like a sticker and over um, stickers the in there and... <laughs> um. I mean, the opening scene with this as well, I mean, it's fucking wild. Um, I mean, it has those homages to Halloween and Psycho. And, of course, this is a Universal film, so there's a homage to Universal monsters, um, especially Frankenstein's creature. Um, I think it's a brilliant opening scene. A bit on the nose with the homages, but the kid brother, let's discuss. Well, it's foreshadowing. I mean, like... Gunther is a Frankenstein-like figure. Yeah. He's a creature of his circumstances. He didn't start off as evil, and he, like, he does bad, sh- bad shit, but you could make the argument he's probably been abused and pushed and treated and this mistreated for his whole life. He's not going to understand. As we can see, he doesn't understand, yeah. and he's got... Um, We'll talk about more when we talk about him, but um, I, I work with people with like mental illnesses, learned disabilities, and... A horror doesn't often do them do them right, but there's yeah, you know, there's like a ten percent of Gunther that's authentic. It feels right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, that that, that is something that I will say is is that when it comes to to mental health or disability, sometimes horror, especially those later periods in the eighties, it it doesn't necessarily um, portray an authentic an authentic way of how that would be perceived, but. Yeah, there is definitely a sympathy to to Gunther. Um and I think like you said, it is it's absolutely um like his his character is foreshadowed in this opening scene with um Joey's 
Jerry's room with all these monsters and what have you, and obviously the creeping up on his sister while dressed as a psycho killer in the shower. As you do. As you do, absolutely. Uh, in her life. <laughs> um, I mean, I, that scene made me feel a little bit uncomfortable, I won't lie. I don't know, more movies need to begin with borderline incest. What's <laughs> in Game of Thrones? I mean, that that's the thing, though. Like, you know, creeping up on your sister in the shower. It's not even just a case of, boo, gone. It's a case of the... He's holding his... and the years for, like, 20 minutes. Yeah. And the camera, like, pans down, and like as if it's his, like, point of view. And it's just like, why are you looking at your sister like this, dude? <laughs> uh, I know. I, I did watch that with my older sister um, when I was a kid, and... I remember she said, that's it, I'm making sure I'm locking the door and making sure you're nowhere near me when I go in the shower. Like, that's fair enough. I'm going to make sure it's a real knife. <laughs> I love that. That was a great comeback. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's it's one of those opening scenes where I thought, yeah, it, it's great. It's a little bit on the nose, as I said. But yeah, also kind of creepy with the, the incest sort of vibe that's going on there. Very eighties though. You wouldn't get that kind of just yeah. gratuitous nudity, just for the sake no. of it. It was, it was just there for the for that. And like the rest of the movie, well, it does have some like sort of scuzzy elements to it. I don't know. It's almost like okay, we'll put this right here at the start to get people so they stick around. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very gratuitous nudity and quite surprising for um, a lead female character in a. Well, this is going to be my next point: a slasher movie. Um, I mean, the movie, for me, it stands out from the other contenders of the slasher boom of the 80s. And some would even argue that this movie isn't a slasher movie for the reason being that it's more of a of a monster film and very much akin to, like, Frankenstein. It's like, like a, that, it's like their modern interpretation of um, a Frankenstein story. But Gunther doesn't really have a weapon or anything like that, and it's. But for me, I would say it's more of a hybrid because this came from Universal as their way of trying to cash in on the success of um, Halloween. But Friday the Thirteenth specifically uh, was what they were looking at. What's your take on that? I guess it depends on how you want to define slasher, how pedantic you want to get. Because if you look at like Friday the Thirteenth in the first movie, the killer doesn't have a specific weapon either they use whatever is available mm. um mm. i think we got i kind of we kind of got hung up on like freddy krueger with his claws and things like that has been it did definitely become a staple of slashers that the killer would have a signature weapon like mm. but as much as like jason Voorhees kills people with a machete he kills them with whatever else he's got handy pitchfork death yeah. in friday the 13th part three that's very memorable he punches a guy's head off and jason takes manhattan like he, <laughs> <laughs> he kills someone with cryogenic freezing like liquid and mm. um, Jason X. I think there's more to a slasher yeah. than just do they have a, a weapon that they use. Yeah, no, I I totally agree with that. One of my favorite kills in any horror movie actually is um, in Friday the Thirteenth. He throws one of the characters straight out the window. I'm my favorite Friday four. the Thirteenth kill kill is the double sleeping bag. Oh yeah, and Jason X. <laughs> I love that. 
Like that's that's the penultimate slasher kill, right? He used he used slasher fodder against slasher fodder, even though they weren't real um, people; they were with a hologram. Yeah, it's just like a virtual reality, like slasher victims for for Jason X. <laughs> no, that was a really cool scene um, with Jason X. Um, I mean, the main characters in the fun house as well. They're they're an ensemble of. Um, teens, and I use that term very loosely, especially for Buzz, um, and annoying kid brother, but the standout of this group, um, if we're going down the slasher convention, is meant to be Amy. But to me, like I feel like it's very much more of a collective. Like I don't feel like, even though, spoiler alert, later on Amy survives, and she's the last survivor, um, it does. It feels more like this is a focus on a group rather than a particular character to make it from A to 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 Z by the end, if that makes sense. Well, this is early days slasher. Like it's nineteen eighty one, I believe. Yeah, nineteen eighty one. This one, yeah. So we're not that far from like sort of like obviously the roots got its roots. The genre's got its roots in like Giallo and. Um, even like back to Psycho, but if we take it from Halloween and Black Christmas, we're kind of like the first, and then Friday the Thirteenth, the one that kind of set the mold. That sort of the first half of the eighties was kind of filled with slashers that were trying to figure out which parts of the formula worked and which parts didn't. Mm. So you had like people, you had movies like My Bloody Valentine, stuff like that. Like, well, maybe what makes it important, maybe a certain date, graduation date, it's got to be a certain date. That's what works. Um, there's other ones that double down on the sex elements. There's other ones that double down on the violence. But many of these, I mean, again, if some people would say the same argument for Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not actually a slasher movie. That's a bloodless mm. movie for the most part. Yeah. Same with Halloween. And that, that's the thing. It's it's so that's what I mean. It, it's so controversial. Like films like that, they're so controversial. But when you watch them, um, it's 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 the terror. It's not actually the the gore, even though the massacre's in the title, there isn't really much of a massacre going on, but it feels like it just because of the feel of the film. Yeah. I was I riffed on that for my Cotton Candy Massacre title, and the the way I'm ad- advertising it is like uh, I'm ripping off the the opening scroll where this really happened. But um, part, part of my shtick with the stories I write was I want to write the movies that never existed I always wanted to see. So, well, there wasn't mm. enough blood and guts in this, well, I'll make sure there is. As as a writer myself, I kind of feel like that's where, especially with slasher movies. Bearing in mind, there's about four thousand slasher movies and imitations, B movies, giallo hybrids, etc., etc. The I write the I write, I think of it as the stories I didn't see and I wanted to see. That's how I kind of think about it when I when I do write. That's the same. Same as the same way I feel. The front zombie sweetheart was like, I got a review that says it feels like an eighties movie that was trying to be a fifties movie, but with like that eighties gory sensibility. And like, mm. I guess because I'm going to view everything through that vent lens of that's when I grew up. So even when I do something set in a period, like um, I won't say what it is, but I'm working on a, a book set in the nineteen forties at the moment, and mm. like horror movies from then weren't gory. No. But, oh, I've got like. Just kind of some 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 light cannibalism. <laughs> just some light, just casual cannibalism. Yeah. Nothing, nothing too full on. Just yeah, just a little nibble here and there. <laughs> a little bit, just a little bit. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, 
for me, in terms of, oh, sorry, go on. So just when we're thinking about like, what is a slasher movie? And I'm going to get like really esoteric with it here, but I view slasher movies as a modern equivalent of like a folk tale or theory tale. Mm-hmm. Like, cause there's, I like the car of a, the, the classic slasher movies. There is a, a friend of a friend told me this vibe. And the fun house is like literally starts off with that. Like, Oh, we heard from so-and-so that this was two girls died at this, this carnival last year and stuff. Mm. And there's always like this sort of campfire urban legend. This really happened, but to my cousin three towns over at summer camp. And like the premise of the fun house is a group of teenagers that stay overnight at carnival that just seems like the stuff of urban legends. It's stuff that you know didn't actually happen, but you know somebody that knows somebody that says it did happen. No, I, I agree with that. That's a, a lot of them do feel very much like campfire tales or urban legends. And I feel like as well, especially with later on going back to um, the likes of Goosebumps or Point Horror, I feel like obviously a lot of when you read them, you can tell that a lot of the inspiration comes from some slasher films especially for point horror and it it almost feels like that's the case because it's usually like a bunch of girls saying i heard from my friend that this happened at this house or this happened at this campsite and yeah it's it does when you look at it from that perspective that lens with slasher films it does very much feel like something that you could imagine someone saying to you like oh i heard this story about this place or this person, or what happened in this neighbourhood. I think it was the beginning era of what we see where, like, fact and fiction blend together into mythology. So, like, mm. like some modern times, you've got the Slenderman creepypasta, which took mm. on a life of its own, and then was, I want, like, I, I don't agree with this, the vibe that oh, movies make people kill people, or make people violent, um, the whole the whole screen thing, um, Movies don't make cycles. People into cycles. Movies make cycles more creative. Um, mm. But you saw like the Slender Man and the the kill, the stabbing, the assault that, that went with it. That was like that was a case of a urban, an internet urban legend trans, sort of becoming part of real life mythology. Mm. And it's sort of bleeding yeah. back. Often, I really thought slasher movies in the eighties were the start of that happening, like because. What was it? Um, the tra- the town that dreaded sundown was based on yes. real real murders and stuff, and it incorporated yeah. like the actual killings into the story in a fictional sense. Yeah, I mean it's that that's something that really fascinates me. I've actually got a book on like the true stories behind some horror films, and the Texarkana murders is something that really did fasc- fascinates me because it's it's a real life slasher of like slasher story because it actually happened to people. And it's it's just really weird. I mean, Jack the Ripper, obviously, going back way, way back. Like, you know, there we go. Another slasher story pre. Oh, but that, he just, that was the Penny Dreadfuls that inspired him to do that, obviously. It was. Mm. There would be something that would. There's always, there's always some more <laughs> panic. Of course, absolutely. Um, so the brother, Joey, I know we've, we've, we've got into the fact he's an incestuous, weird little shit. But his subplot in this movie is kind of 
strange. So he sees Amy, Buzz, Richie, and um, oh, what's the other girl's name? I've forgotten the name already. Liz, Liz, yeah, Liz. Um, so yeah, they he watches um, them drive away to the carnival, and then he f- sneaks out the house and follows to go to the carnival himself, and he kind of like wanders around and he kind of takes the carnival in and then later on he gets um he has a very brief encounter with gunther and that like traumatizes him and then he's taken in by um a worker at the carnival who caresses his face in a really uncomfortable way in front of his parents as well they just sit there and watch that man do it like yeah, it's just like, I was watching it, and I was just like, what the fuck is going on here? Why are the parents just staring at him doing it? And then he drives away, and that's like that's that's Joey's subplot in this entire film. I don't I don't understand why. I mean, I think what what they were trying to convey with that is that obviously when he does sneak up on Amy in the shower, she promises him that she will get him back. And I think his encounter with Gunther, I think he feels like that was her way of getting back to him. And that's why that overplays in his head when he's about to drive away. And obviously Amy's screaming through the the fan because she can see her family and she's trying to get out. But it doesn't really go anywhere. Like, Well, he knows they're in the raid, if I remember correctly. So he knows that they were they were staying there for the night. Um, I have a I have a theory or a suggestion that. So you've already said then Amy survives. Um, I feel like maybe they were like they didn't have enough for a film with just the ones inside the right. So we needed a subplot. Or we needed something to cut away with, and you get this in your mm. right. You need like something maybe to jump from this to that, so that I've got a break between what's going on here. Hmm. And it does very much feel like that, I must admit. It doesn't feel that it's fully integrated into the main plot. And if it was me, what I would have done is because he's like explicitly basically covered for his sister at the end of his subplot, and that she's not, he's not told anyone that they're there. When Amy comes out and she's all like beaten up and bedraggled, if like the carnival folk had found her and they were like, they know. That basically she's going to blow the lid on the fact that they've been covering up murders and everything like that. But then they also mm-hmm. know that someone's basically covered and said that she wasn't there. It gives like it could have, it would have been so bleak. But imagine if after everything she goes through, like she's just taken out to cover up the crimes, like just helplessly because like after everything she struggled through, she people would I don't know maybe she like comes out like a whole bunch of people she thinks she's safe mm-hmm. and she's not. But Amy feels a bit like an on untapped potential as well it's like the person we were watching this there's a moment earlier on when they're like before they, they pair of on the the girly show and like amy stares mm. at the dancers and it's does she want to be one of them or is she attracted to them like she's supposed to be on this date with this guy and she doesn't seem that interested in him like no they, and like they, they get it on and stuff but even then she's very enthusiastic about it it almost feels like like i don't know like cooper was trying to do more than he could do with the character. Yeah, that's. I do feel that with with Amy, I feel that she's underdeveloped as as a main for that reason. Um, like like as you said, she she doesn't seem that into 
um, buzz. I mean, maybe it's because it's the fact he's clearly uh, 30 plus years old and she feels uncomfortable with that. But there we go. Um, even though he's meant to be like, what, 16, 17? Hi, I'm in my um, 30s and they're dating a 24 year old, so don't. Uh, <laughs> I've been there, I've been there. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, she just, yeah, she feels, she does feel quite underdeveloped, I feel, as um, a main in this film. And uh, also, as well, kind of going, kind of going back to what you said about maybe the subplot was there to fill in the gaps for for the film. A lot of this film, I feel, and this isn't a bad thing, but a lot of it is actually viewing the the carnival and all the attractions around it like that. That takes up a, quite a big chunk of the movie before any any action kicks in after the opening, really. But the sets on this are just. It's a, I think it's a beautiful film to look at. Like it's absolutely stunning. Somebody... So I could have sworn, and I can't remember where I read this. And I was trying to get it, like I was trying to clarify it before today and like find verification of it. But was this not the case of it's an actual carnival, and mm. they were staying at like a cheap motel across from the carnival, and then filming after it closed at night because it's shot in location in Miami. Mm. Um. Because it does feel authentic. It's got that sort of like dirty, scuzzy. To be honest, that's what I wanted with the Cotton Candy Massacre. I wanted it to feel like this is like a this is like a dirty place. This is not like although it's meant for kids and families, it's very filthy and it's very there's just an edge of seediness and there's always just beneath the veneer of colourful cotton candy, there's like perversion and there's corruption. Yeah, it definitely feels like that. I mean, I believe I mean, that that would probably kind of make sense, actually. I, I know that the production was apparently quite troubled, um, and I think it had something to do with the sets, but I couldn't find any concrete information on that, so I won't say that for gospel. Yeah. But I think the interiors have to be set. So it's like, if you've ever been on any of these funhouse rides, they're never as awesome as that ride is. No, I've, I've, I've been not. on a ghost train that had, like, masks from Asda pinned to the wall. <laughs> <laughs> the height of how scary they are. Like, I mean, I've I've experienced. Um, there's this um, event that takes place um, around here called Farmageddon. I don't know if you have anything similar near you, um, but it's it's like this. It's like this big, um, like fun house. Like it's huge. Like it's on a massive farm, and there's like fun different fun houses for different things. And it's a lot of killer clowns with chainsaws and um, people dressed up as. Jason, although I did say like um to one guy one year when he ran at me, I was just like, Oh my god, it's Jason. He said, No, I'm not, it's copyrighted. Don't call me that. <laughs> I had a similar instance when um we have in Scotland there's a couple of things like that I've been to. I've been to one where it's like a zombie thing and you get these sort of like infrared um military training rifles. Apparently it's what the armed forces actually use, and it's like people dress as zombies and they'll run at you and you've got to shoot them. Like, no, obviously not real bullets, yes. like red lights and stuff, but that was really cool. Um, mm. it, was, it was a group of four gamers going through it, so we'd done it in, like, record time and never even got at all. And as a bit where you're at the end, you can look down on the last group going through, and they were panicking, mm. and one guy, like, shoved his girlfriend into the group of zombies to get away. And I'm like, I can we've had that experience. Because like, we just got through it so smooth. I think we got through it the quickest time of the day. Really, I actually felt ripped off, even though I wasn't ripped off, but we made it too easy for ourselves. <laughs> but we had that. But occasionally we have like M&D's theme park and they do like a Halloween horror maze thing. 
Mm-hmm. We went to it one year and it was this sort of Elm Street type of vibe where you're in this room, you're getting this theatre and it fills with smog and it's meant to be you're being like drugged and you're now entering like the dream world and like all these nightmares come to real. And um, I'm just I'm just going to out myself here for, for, for something. But it got to a bit where you go through a room and there was like this girl dressed as a, like a crazy cycle clown and she's like giggling and she's like waving. And I was just like, hey. Like you're cute. <laughs> I was <wasn't> scared. <laughs> I discovered something about myself that day. Anyway, the cotton candy mask is not clown porn. I mean, there, there's attractive things <laughs> in it. I'm sure people find that kind of thing attractive. I'm sure people will, and I'm sure people do. <laughs> I mean, I must admit, going to those sorts of fun houses or or, or mazes or you know stuff like that. I don't know if you've experienced this, but when I go to them, I'm always like, yeah, you know, I, I read horror, I watch horror, nothing's going to scare me. Now, as soon as a clown runs at me with a fake chainsaw at full speed, I scream at the top of my lungs. So maybe I'm not as much of, um, you know, a, like immune to the horror as I think I am, especially in a real life situation. <laughs> I don't, I, I, I'm more like just enjoying it and like, oh, this is awesome. Oh, this is so awesome. Oh, this room's going to be just themed or whatever. <laughs> The only one that really kind of unnerved me was we did this one where it's in the woods um, in Argyle Forest in Scotland mm. and you're being chased by like, zombies through the woods and they'll jump out and like basically you're going from checkpoint to checkpoint. Um, mm. It's like you're following like, mil- like military like, soldiers that try to get like civilians out. And when you get to the final room, um, the soldier that gets you there uh, points out that it's airborne and we're all infected. And there's only one way to deal with it. So the lights go out and they make it like the gas in the room. And it was so uncomfortable. It was so bleak and it was so dark and it had so many like really nasty connotations. Like I think everyone that was there was just so sad, walked out silent with their heads down after that. So like, fucking hell, like that psychological bit, bit at the end. Bloody hell. How to traumatize a, 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 the public with, a, like, with an event like that, eh? Yeah, because I remember like <laughs> waiting to go in and people are all like, there's like sort of like a campfire and there's like, like you know, vendors and stuff like that. And it was kind of like almost like a little festival feel and everyone going in was all excited and you could hear the screams in the woods and everyone's all coming out. But when you come out at the back, it was silent. It was just that God. bit at the end. It was just such a bleak ending. God, that's crazy. A, yeah. Um, the only thing that speaking of, speaking of setting though as well with this film, the only thing that kind of confuses me, and I think it was obviously just for the vibe, but did you notice in Zena's in Zena's place, it was covered in cobwebs, and this is a traveling carnival, bearing in mind. Like it's literally it's covered a traveling in carnival, and um, like story wise, but looking at it, it looks more like a fixed location one, like Gunther's room and everything like that. That's how long are they there for? That's not something you can pack up overnight and move away. No, that's the only thing that I was kind of like looking at as well when I was looking at the sets. I was just like, okay, if it's a traveling carnival, like you said, there must be some fixed places for them to 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 stay. I would imagine, but oh, there are. So with with the Cotton Candy Massacre, Bonkins Bonanza is a fixed location carnival. It doesn't travel, Mm. but so. Um, when I was doing my research on traveling carnivals and how they work, there's a lot of carnivals, like the bigger ones, they maybe have like a fixed location and this is their home base. Um, mm. But they would have like certain elements of their carnival that would travel. Um, yeah. 
a way you see that is the recent like Guillermo del Toro adaptation of Nightmare Alley, where well, I've not watched that yet, but yeah, I've, I've Bradley Cooper's character first sort of becomes involved, if I, if I remember right, with the carnival while it's traveling, and then he gets work with mm. them, and then he comes to where they're settled. So they've got like a, a fixed setting where it's like their main location, and they maybe like spend most of their time here, but elements of it travel. So like mm. some rides and stuff pack up and things like that, but yeah, I think if if it's right and they did film this at a real carnival, I'd imagine it was like a settled one with only like some yeah. stuff that would maybe pack up and move. Yeah, that makes more sense. I mean, like that's what kind of what threw me when I was watching it, um, rewatching it was like it's a tra- traveling carnival, but. I was looking at the sets and I was like, nah, this this place has been here for a while. But I mean, it's still, it goes with the look of the film. So it doesn't really matter. That's just me, me just like picking everything apart because that's what I do when I watch a film nowadays. But um, let's let's talk about our monster, our slasher villain, Gunther. Because he's cleverly featured in the background before the action kicks in, dressed as Frankenstein's monster. And it's just, I just thought that was a clever tactic before um incorporating him into the film later on like really you know showing showing him off because he's obviously before the big reveal we get a bit of foreshadowing with cows no less yeah those are all real sideshow attractions from that time with the um obviously yeah the double-headed cow and the cow with a cleft palate it doesn't endear, I guess, maybe, I don't know, back then, but definitely doesn't endear empathy or sympathy towards Amy when she like if she refuses to pat the cow because it's got two heads. Like, mm. she's going to pat the cow, and then she's, like, pulled away because it's got two heads. Like, no, you pat it twice then. And, yeah, I mean, her obviously her reaction as well to um to to Gunther's father later on, say, when she says, like, how can you love him? He's not even human. Like, you know, she's got absolutely no sympathy for... I think that's just to show, like, the, you know, the the conflict on both sides for Amy and for, for Gunther. So I think that's the idea behind it. Like, but again, like you said, there, it's a weird one because I feel I feel sympathy for Gunther, but I don't really feel much sympathy for Amy. <laughs> Probably. Well, kind of the same. I think Amy's... Um, Amy's more just completely out of her depth and doesn't know and thinks like she's set up as like she she's kind of like acting like she knows it all but she clearly doesn't she clearly doesn't even know who she, yeah. who she is herself um that's exactly it yeah she she uh, again maybe it's the underdevelopment of her character but yeah like she doesn't she doesn't stand out to me as somebody who knows who she is and i mean it doesn't it doesn't take away from anything from the film for me because you know it's it's not necessarily that I need to root for the main character to en- enjoy a, f- a film, but for me, like, yes, yeah, she's considering the final girl of the girls of these era of, of that era. Amy's one that just doesn't like. I wouldn't rate her at all for for any reason. At least the one one of the good things about as a final girl, if you remember in Virgin Night, I had a line where the character Casey and outright states that they will for this for their this scheme that the guys are up to they need a final girl and um mm. caleb yes. immediately dismisses her because she's not a virgin or she won't be like you know she, she's like she's hooking up with someone um and she's a, a line that i really enjoyed writing where it's like you'll fu- fundamentally misunderstand the final girl 
concept. She doesn't have to be a nun. She just has to have mm. a good heart. And I think with like Amy, because she does get it on and she is a sexual being, but what I discounts her for me is the fact she doesn't have a good heart. Yeah. Like, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's as if they were trying to stray away from the the final girl trope in a way, because like you said, she's sexually active, but um, yeah, she hasn't got like any sympathy and there's nothing sympathetic about her to, to really root for her. So never really kind of again to help her friends. Mm. Like, yeah, no, she doesn't. There's always a bit like, so like Friday the 13th, um, you know, the final girl of that film, she goes back out and it's raining and everything. She goes to look for people. She puts herself in harm's way to mm. try and help people. That's like Nancy and Elm Street, you know, does yeah. everything she can. She, she doesn't even just try and help. She goes, tries to go toe-to-toe with a monster to save her friends. Like, I think that's, I think that to me, that's more fundamental about the final girl is that she has to have that willingness yeah. to stand. No, that's part of the symbolism of all. She has to have that willingness to stand against the sort of yeah. evil I, force that's in the play. No, I, t- I totally agree, and I think that, again, it's something that Amy lacks. And I suppose, again, it's, this could lead into why people argue that it's not your conventional type of slasher film, really. Like, it is more of a, a monster thriller horror, in a way, rather than a slasher. Um, I mean, let's let's look at the kills, for example. I mean, going off that, um, how, how do you rate them um, for this film? Do you think that they're they're good kill scenes, or do you think that they're quite pretty subpar? I mean, this is the thing. Like I said, we said earlier with the video nasties, this was seized accidentally, but in fact, it was actually it was actually pretty tame compared There's to nothing particularly graphic. Um, there there is more like good build up to the kills, like and when Liz is in the vent shafts with Gunther, mm. that's more that's the atmosphere of that and the flickering lights and the shadows and the fact she's completely cornered. And um, the way like she pleads with Gunther and she offers herself up and everything like that. The only thing I have is whenever you go to stab someone in these movies, why do they all just go stab them for the back? You go straight for the head. They don't, or some people got a chance for it. They don't stab someone in the back or somewhere where they're not going to get away. They go for the neck or they go for the chest. They go for the heart. They go for something that's going to make a difference. Yeah, absolutely. What made me laugh about that scene? I mean, I mean, I, I agree with you. By the way, I think that that is a terrific kill scene because of the atmosphere and the the lighting and everything around it. But what makes me laugh about that kill scene is you can see the rubber knife bend on his back. <laughs> so when the blade's meant to go in, it bends. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's the, is it the same knife from the shower scene. To just reuse the prop. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was clearly a very fake rubber knife as well. Um, uh, but I mean, apparently, I mean, I, I also, I like that scene. I like Liz's death scene, and I also think the, uh, the accidental. I mean, he's already dead, but the accidental uh, axe to the head to uh, Richie when he comes through on the ghost train, like. I mean, that was more funny than anything because I just think like you'd be devastated. <laughs> but, I think if I'm giving like, like an that. award to the movie, it's um, Buzz getting a sword through him. Oh, with with no um, with no clear hole at all. Even though there's just like a little spot of blood on him. Yeah, but it's just because I remember thinking when watching it and when I was rewatching it recently, it's like you know this this ride 
is more dangerous than any killer in this movie. Like all this stuff's such a health hazard. Like somebody could trip and stab him. So, oh, oh, he did. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true though. Like I mean, uh, if, if we think about it from this logic, the, that place does more harm than pretty much got other than Liz. That was pretty brutal. That was actually pretty brutal in the end. And this place does more harm than I think as a stab at being symbolic as well, because you know, Buzz is supposedly a sex symbol. Like <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's in the you know, he was like the tor- he's, he's he's trying to like alpha up and throw his weight around and act like he's you know I don't know, I always felt like the couples were mismatched in it. Like it kind of felt like he would have been with Liz and Amy would have been with is it Richie? Like Yeah. No, I agree with that. They seem like mismatched. They seem very Yeah. Mismatched. Yeah. Um because he's yeah, the one yeah. he cuts the hole, which Oh, that's one of like favorite bits is they're, they're, when they're spying in, in the peep, they nick the peep hole in the girly show tent. Mm. There's already like a taped up hole underneath. So is that saying that other people have just been perving or did they film this scene already and had to refilm it? And why not just take the tape off and use the hole that was already there if there's already one? Oh, yeah. Never thought about that actually. Because, like, you know, we they make a big show of, I guess it was to show that he had a knife, it was an excuse for like. Um, like foreshadowing that he had a weapon mm. doesn't do him any good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've not read because this there's a novelization of the screenplay before it even um it was even handed to Toby Hooper. I've not read it, but apparently, um, the original screenplay was more brutal with some of the kills, towards, especially towards um Liz and um, some of the female characters. Um, but they cut it from the movie because of how overly sexually graphic the girl scenes were, which I think was probably a good idea from what I've read. It's also part of the course for 80s horror novels. Like, I grew I used to read, when I was younger, I read a lot of Richard Lehman, and I still try and maybe I want to like read his whole bibliography, just yeah. out of like determination. But going back to some of his books, it was like, Wall to wall sexualization and sexual violence. I think a lot of horror authors from that era really did did that though. I think it was just like it was a it was kind of the norm because it was the way I looked at it or look at it was that they could get away with it in a book what they couldn't get away with on on a screen. But also basically. sold really well. I think a part of it would be publishers that would be pushing for that, and they would be saying, "Okay, up the up, yeah. up the nudity count, up the sex count." Because they knew that there was a market for people that would buy that stuff, and there still is. It's just now mostly on Kindle Unlimited, which yeah. my book's on. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> What's the um, what I was going to bring up? Because I've got to bring it up. I'm so, I, I do. The uncomfortable, really uncomfortable scene where Xena gives Gunther a hand shandy. That just made me feel so icky. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't think you're meant to enjoy it. Well, no, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but I think it was just the... Oh, I think it's, like, obviously Zena's character is just the way that as, as she is as well. It just... I just don't know. Like, it kind of was just a random moment. 
But obviously this is the chain reaction that leads to Gunther going on a killing spree. So I suppose it's relevant for that reason. But yeah, I just had to bring it up. I had to. Yeah, like, I mean, even as Gunther's father brings up the whole thing, like, if you wanted, like, a girl like that, we could have just got you one of the girly showgirls. But, mm. you know, maybe Gunther, you know, knew Xena, knew what she was doing. I don't know. Like, yeah. Well, it, yeah, it's that, like, it's that sad. Like, I could have got it for $50 instead of 100 Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> should have gone to his dad. You know, like, there'd be so much unfinished or on, on like, like concepts here, like we don't we don't know Gunther's mother. Mm. Is he not a mother? No, that's true. Is this a Norfeus in is it no? You're the, what's the, the Greek mother and son thing? Oh, um is No, it, I don't. I forgot. It's it. Total blank. When I, I remember but, something yeah. makes me smart. But it, <laughs> Don't worry. Like, if I can't remember, then it's, yeah, it's fine. I'm sure. I'm sure people will know what we're, what you're on about there. Don't worry. <laughs> but there, there, I don't know. There seems to be. Is it maybe just an un? Maybe that that's the intention that he goes mm. specifically to her because he's really seeking a mother figure. He doesn't have a mother figure. Possibly, yeah, that would make sense. His father is like both. Supportive and abusive in yeah. like equal parts. Like he's clearly loves the kid and has some degree of understanding. Like so when um when Gunther like after he's killed Xena and he's like having uh, like a moment and he's like fully raging and he's hitting himself, um there's a that's quite an authentic moment to me. And the way the father is like encouraging him to do it to himself and not to lash out. It's almost like in a warped way he gets that his son's like this and he doesn't know how to help him or do anything else other than help him direct it in a way that he's not going to get anyone else in trouble. Mm. He's not afraid of Gunther. He's like right in Gunther's face. Mm, that's true, yeah. There is definitely like that. That uh, There is that love there, but there's also that resentment as well for, I think, the way Gunther is. Um, it's like a conflict of, of like, like he's in a, is how we, I guess, because, but he doesn't seem that phased, um, about local murders. Just, I think he even says at one point, you could have killed someone, one of the locals, but you had to kill one of the family. And I, I suppose that's an important keyword, actually, in, in that context with Zena, that he refers to Zena as family. Well, that's part of the, so that, there's a lot the reading like about the history of carnivals and clammy folk and there's there's a lot of interesting stuff and there are things like that where because they're perpetual outsiders they are can seen as in so you you can rip off and you can cheat and you can do all sorts of stuff to the locals they'll call them um yeah or the natives um that's like like they, they would use like derogatory terms for the town people when the towns they go to because they knew they'd be treated as outsiders and like scum any anyway. But there is this whole going like way back to like I think like the first sort of carnival horror movie like Todd Browning's Freaks. Um, mm. like you don't screw over the carnival, like you don't screw over. You don't you don't rob. You don't steal from each other. You don't hurt each other. You don't do that. You look out for each other because they're all you've got. 
So I think that's yeah. that's very authentic. They would have that disregard for people outside the carnival, but people within the carnival, their family. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, to be honest. And if it, I, I think that's something that kind of um, it, it breaks the... So what I'm looking for here with with Gunfair doing that, it, it it kind of like breaks those that protective shield they have from the outsiders, and that's why, obviously, the blame is from his father is switched on to the kids that are hiding in there. I think to kind of show that like it's it's their fault that it's happened rather than Gunfair's. There's that that element to it as well. I think. Although the whole thing would have completely happened if they weren't even there. Mm, that's very true, yeah. Very true. That's one of those, like, the readers of the Lost Ark moment. Is it that the right one where, like, you could actually remove a character and the story still would have happened? Yeah. can't remember which. It's one of the Indiana Jones movies. You're like, yeah, do you know what? Actually, he doesn't actually need to have been involved the whole thing. Like, you could remove him and the events would have still unfolded. Mm. So, it's a good way to think like about that. It, yeah. if they never stayed over there overnight and she still would have died. Like, there just would have been yeah. less... Gunther would have actually probably lived and there would just been less to deal with. Yeah, it wouldn't have been as chaotic. I mean, the ending... Do you, Is it a satisfying ending for you? No, I like... I, in I, terms... I don't think she should have... Like, I don't know. I guess because it's the slasher... That they were starting to sort of set the mold for slasher movies and every other slasher movie had like a lone female survivor like walk out at the end so I think they were like that and I guess Universal's involvement as well they're wanting to kind of keep it a bit tame but I wouldn't have had Amy survive <laughs> no I wouldn't either I mean even during the 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 final battle and I'll use that word loosely she just kind of stands there and watches him like electrocute himself then get himself caught in the mechanism and she just like screams at him it's like are you gonna run? Are you are you gonna do anything? Are you gonna are you gonna finish him off? But she just kind of yeah, she just kind of starts. I suppose it's the trauma of it all. But in the same breath, it just feels very um, oh okay. I mean, I'm 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 all for the final character walking off into the distance, the sunset, whatever. Um, but the actual like the end of the the monster that. The end of the, what's been causing all this chaos. I just felt feel like Gunther maybe could have had a more satisfying ending than that. Yeah, it kind of um, it kind of just takes care of himself, mm. like because he is, he electrocutes himself while he's thrashing around, and then he gets caught up in the machinery. Like you said, he's not. There's no um moment where like Amy really strikes back or does anything that really. Like really solves the problem. Like if you go back like Friday the Thirteenth, there's no like that slow motion moment on the beach. The you know the on the beach, the like by the shore, the scrambling for the yeah. machete, the slashing, the um Tom Savini's hands coming up. Yeah, <laughs> the hairy the hairy arms. <laughs> um, yeah, there's yeah, there's none of that really. And if, I, I I mean, I wonder if it was just that that case of like you said, with it being universal, they would. Ch- trying to keep it a bit more tame than that like they've already had the the shock value right at the beginning of the movie with the opening and i, I suppose they wanted to maybe keep it quite clean for the the ending you also think that um universal were telling toby to basically do they were wanting him to ape the texas chainsaw massacre 
because obviously that has well she gets away at the end and then you've got like Leatherface like spinning famously into the sunset um Mm. because it does feel um in many ways like a funhouse mirror remake of the texas chainsaw massacre yeah i mean that was funny enough that was the um the next thing i was going to bring up i mean with the critical success of um of this film it led to toby hooper landing the directing gig for for poltergeist but in terms of his other films like do you do you feel like he does have a signature flair in his films because this this and um, i can see is a toby hooper film he does with other... i will say he was also actually he turned down the spielberg wanted him to direct et apparently Yes, he he did, yeah. um, mm-hmm. and that leads into what I think Toby Hooper. Toby Hooper is a person like his style, and like I'll say, like I want to be. Sometimes I'll say I want to be the Toby Hooper of horror fiction mm. because he doesn't work in one horror genre. He's not just a slasher yeah. guy, but whatever horror, whatever piece he writes, whatever he's working on. He goes at it full thrall and he leans into everything about it that's to love about it. And I, I wouldn't say it's overindulged or overabundant, but it's like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is soaked in like the sort of orangey glow of a Texas sunset and it's very atmospheric and you've got the rundown farmhouse and everything. It's very rural, very backwoods feeling. This, you know, is completely scuzzy. It's dirty. It feels like a carnival. Like watching it, you can, you can get that sense. And then when he came in doing Poltergeist, he didn't just do like ghosts, like you know, with chains and popping out walls. He had like absolute visions of nightmares with twisted faces and trees grabbing kids and like all manner of. Is that the first one? That is the first one with the tree, isn't it? It is, yeah. Well, that was going to be the next thing I was going to bring you because I actually recently did an episode on Poltergeist with my friend Shelley, and we discussed this. Uh, and I know it's been all over the place with who who was there, who said what, and who did what. Does it feel like a Toby Hooper film to you, Poltergeist, or does it feel like a Steven Spielberg film? I think it feels, or, does, like or both. rather, what was that? Sorry, I think it feels like both. And I think, mm. like, of many things in this world, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And I think Spielberg clearly liked Toby mm. and wanted him to do something. He was trying to give him opportunities all the time. Like, I think there's one crit- one criticism of the Funhouse at the time came out, and it st- did rate the film well, but it stayed. that yeah. Hooper should have moved on to better things by now. I read that same review, yeah, and it's... <sighs> It's like, well, about horror, but it also shows that this yeah. is what Toby wants. He wants to do this horror stuff, and he that's what he likes. So even if yeah. it's like, um, I, mean, I had a similar thing um, when I was in. I remember when I was in high school, and I had to do like a senior project on. I was like on um, website design, and mm. I was on. I was in our computer science class, and um, I chose like website design, and even though it meant I couldn't get the top grade because it wasn't an advanced project. So like the projects were ranked mm. by like what difficulty they would be, and um, I this was a project that could only get like a, I think it was like a three instead of like a two or one, and two or one were the best at best. And the teacher told me, "But you're capable of getting a one if you pick a more advanced project." I went, no, but I want to do this. So I just made a like a small website um, 
there was like a because I was like obsessed with the Blair Witch Project at the time, so it was basically like a fake Blair Witch type thing. Yeah, like all these people have gone missing and like telling a little story through this little website and like putting like fake I made fake news articles and I put photos in and stuff like that. I think Toby is that's what I admire about him. He seems like that kind of guy. Like, okay, you could do this big budget family film that's going to like make you a lot of money and make you very famous, or you can do this mm-hmm. super low budget scuzzy. Um, slasher movie well I'm going to go do that Yeah, I love no I totally agree I mean th- that's the thing with, with Toby Hooper is that people I think I mean I, I've argued this with Poltergeist because it does feel like a Steven Spielberg film to me but there is definitely some things that Toby Hooper contributed to that film regardless of what conflict conflicted reports are of. but with Toby Hooper his films, although they may not always have a signature flair or seem consistent to a style, that's a good thing to me. Like, I recently watched Crocodile, which is very much like O.O.'s like, um, sci-fi film, but I absolutely loved it, because I, I thought, Do you know what? Good for him. That he, wa- he clearly wanted to do a film that was like that, and it, it works in his favour, because that's, that's the type of film he obviously wanted to make. He wanted to make that sort of film. And yeah, I think he just leans into that what this film is supposed to be and what it's supposed to be about, and it, like I don't know, it's almost like a chimeric style. Like if he's he can do like a sci, like he said, he can do like a sci-fi style movie. He can do like a grindhouse style movie. He can do a Spielberg style movie. But he's always yeah, his own um, like I guess one hundred and ten percent commitment kind of way. With the Funhouse, in terms of all the imitations that came out during this golden era. Does it does it land quite highly for you? Do you rate it quite high amongst amongst the uh, imitations? I'll use that term very loosely because to me they all have something individual about them. Yeah, I'm I'm like with you there. I don't like like this whole oh well, it's an imitation or it's a it's a Friday the Thirteenth copycat. You get the same in the video game world. Like every single yeah. shooter that came out in the nineties was a Doom clone, even if it didn't play yeah. at all like Doom. Um, yeah, exactly. Like just because it happened to be first person, every found footage movie is just a Blair Witch copy. Even though it wasn't even the first found footage movie, but as much as I love it, mm. but that's a genre, it's a style, well, it's a style and a genre. It's an argument. Yeah. It's an argument for a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, um, I it's a hard one to separate because it's one that if you've got a nostalgic like glasses, you've got a nostalgic tie to it. You're always going to see it that way. Um, mm. I think you and I both have an emotional connection to it for different things where it came out, came along at a pivotal time in our like developing our obsession with horror. Yeah. Whereas there's other like movies that I didn't see at the time, and like I can objectively say that they're better movies, but don't have that importance to me. Like The Burning, I think it's like quintessential yeah. summer camp horror movie and sleepaway camp. Like these are like mm. I guess like two iconic verified ones. I didn't see them growing up. I came to them later, like as a young adult, like trying to like like dig more into the horror genre and stuff I like. So I didn't see Sleepaway Camp series until probably my mid twenties when it like got finally got like a DVD release. Yeah, it's, I, I, funnily enough, I saw both of those. No, I'll tell a lie. I saw Sleepaway Camp later on in life. I saw the burning on a very bad Vipco DVD, um, like a very bad transfer. Um, so, I, but I didn't really 
think much of it. And then I watched it later on in life, and now I really love that film. But I had, as soon as I watched Sleepaway Camp for the first time, I think I was 18, and I I, I got an emotional connection to that straight away. And that, that's come full circle now, because I finally met Felissa Rose, who plays Angela, and that was, like, the best day of my life. So. Um, but, yeah, no, it's... It, it's. I think, like you said, it's the emotional connection that you have to those films when you are younger, and how you, whether it be because you remember it for the box art or a specific scene, music, whatever. And I think that's definitely the case with the Funhouse, regardless of its quality or or where it lands amongst these other films. That it probably has like a higher a higher rating for me because it's one that I did see a bit earlier on compared to others. Yeah. I think it definitely deserves, um, like if I were to give it like five out of five machetes or whatever it's, uh, <laughs> it's, I, I hate, I personally hate like ratings and number scores and things like that. I don't like, I hate having to use them on Goodreads and things like that to rate other things. All reviews yeah. are entirely subjective and I'm the kind of like, I can give, Five, I would give five stars to both The Shining and Sharknado. Mm. You know, they're not objectively, The Shining is a far better made film. It's film as art, and Sharknado is junk food for the brain. But yeah. my enjoyment, I enjoy both for what they are in, in their own unique ways. And to me, like. Yeah. If I've, if I've enjoyed it, I've loved it. It, does, it deserves a full... If I've enjoyed my time with it, it deserves a full score. Like, Yeah. No, um, I completely, completely agree. So I can see like someone like coming looking at the fun house and watching it now, never having seen it. Mm. For me, it gets like bonus points for the setting, for the authenticity, for the style of it. And then the nostalgia factor t- tips it over. So it's, that's why it's one of love. It's one of my cherished Arrow releases, especially now that, as you said, it's... <laughs> Ridiculous it's like hard 70 quid copy. yeah like to get a second hand copy it's like yeah I would, well, with all the releases the re-releases that Arrow do if anyone from Arrow like, if they ever listen to this podcast can you please re-release the fun house again please yeah. <laughs> so some of us can buy it from HMV and not for 70 to 80 pounds on eBay I went through <laughs> the same thing trying to get a copy of Killer Clowns from Outer Space for their blue release yeah. Eventually got lucky, got pre-owned one for fifteen pounds. Which God, it's it's crazy though how much. I mean, I understand, especially with with um, Arrow eighty eight those sorts of those sorts of um, distributors. I understand why people price them high on eBay, especially when they go out of print. But it's like, ugh, like just re-release them because you re-release everything else. <laughs> yeah, even I mean, I've got and. Um, decent collection of the 88 film slasher classics but looking at some mm. of the gaps i've got and how much they are like i regret not picking up a copy of scallops for 13 pounds when it's now currently going for like 60 jesus i mean you know it's, it's, that's what i mean it's a case of like can you justify that well thank you very much kit for uh coming on and, and chatting about this film with me um it's been an absolute pleasure to have you but um before you go do you want to tell our listeners where they can follow you for more updates on, uh, especially the Candy Cotton Massacre, which comes out on July 1st, and um, all your future projects? Yeah, uh, thanks for, for having me, Leroy. Uh, just awesome to be included. It kind of blows my mind that people actually want to read my crazy stuff and 
actually listen to the stuff I have to say. Oh no, of course. It's um, been honestly, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you. I've I've really enjoyed talking to you about, especially about this film and about your your writing. And uh, yeah, no, it's abs- been an absolute pleasure to have you on. So I'm on Instagram um, at Kit underscore Romero. That's that's the only that's social really- media I really use. Kind of showing my George Romero fanboyism. <laughs> All right, guys. So you can also follow me on Instagram at the Roy Cross James, or you can follow the Slash Akara podcast Instagram as well at Slash Akara, and it's the same on Twitter. So until the next episode, guys, this has been Slash Akara, and I will see you soon. Mm-hmm.